Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science, and tonight we have some very special guests. So we are going to be talking to Pat O'Hara and her husband, Rich Blatchley. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Perfect. (laughs) And they have a new book out called The Chemical Story of Olive Oil. And it's really fascinating. It's almost an encyclopedia. So if you ever wanted to know anything about olive oil whatsoever, (laughs) this book can help you out with it. And hopefully we'll uh, do a mini session tonight. Um, So Pat O'Hara... The reason they have them here is uh, she is a professor of um, biophysical chemistry at Amherst College, Um, but she has been off the last couple of years doing this wonderful sabbatical where she has gone, uh, they have gone together actually, around the world and have found out all about olive oil and all of the amazing things that it has to offer. And, um, so you were, um, before you went off on your trip, um, Rich, you were at, uh, Keene State. That's right. And, um, so yeah, not too far away and hopefully it has been fruitful for your academics, but also fruitful for talking about olive oil. So, um, do you want to just start with a little bit of an overview? Sure. What a nice start. Hi, this is Pat. And I wanted to really just explain a little bit about how a girl from New England got involved in olives and olive oil. So about maybe seven years ago, I had a colleague who was at Amherst College. She was from Turkey. Her name is Zeynep Delin. And she loved teaching in Amherst College. She loved the interdisciplinary nature of it. She'd had all her education in in Turkey in a very kind of very different British system. So when she came to to Amherst College, she really loved the interdisciplinary learning that one has at a liberal arts college. And so when she went back to Turkey, she took with her this dream of starting an institute in Turkey where she could introduce people to the real idea of interdisciplinary learning. And so she invited Rich and I to come in the summer of 2010 to uh, join her to brainstorm how we might be able to combine ideas of economics and history and writing and science and archaeology and sailing and just all kinds of different sorts of perspectives. And we searched around, like, what topic could we possibly choose that would embody all of these ideas and still be interesting to people. And it was a group of Turks in addition to Rich and I. And very, very quickly they all came to olives because Turkey olives are cultural. They are part of the history, economics. Turks will eat olives and olive oil for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, everyone either owns a grove or knows someone who owns a grove. So we felt this would be a topic that would enable us to really kind of showcase and highlight how one could think about things from multiple different perspectives. At the time, Rich and I were really a little bit dumbfounded because this is not, I'm a, as uh, Stacy was mentioning, I'm a biophysical chemist. I do work on protein science. 
uh, and how was I going to really be able to contribute to the program? But we went back to the States and we kind of got our books out and we started doing research. And the more we researched about olive oil, the more fascinated we got. Um, about the same time, um, Tom Mueller's book, Extra Virgin, uh, came out and talked a lot about the fraud in the olive oil industry. Mm-hmm. So that became, his writing was also so compelling. It was just an amazing capacity that he had to make the story of olive oil so very, very compelling and interesting. So using him as sort of a model, um, we put together a program for the next summer, which had students that came to the program. And then we uh, started from that point every summer since then uh, to offer, we don't go every summer, but this program has been offered every summer, Zeytin Okulu, which is in Turkish, uh, is um, the olive school. And actually, Rich and I just came back from teaching our uh, 10-day workshop at Zeytin Okulu for the most recent iteration. And the book was the product of our year sabbatical where we realized that while we had done a lot of our own research, we'd read everything we could get our hands on, spoken to a lot of people, we'd actually never witnessed a harvest. So we'd been there in the summer, olives don't get ripe till the late fall. And so during our sabbatical, we would take, we took off two semesters Stacy said years. I wish it could have been years. That's true. We had yes. Two semesters <laughs> where we could go uh, throughout the olive world. We spent six months in the northern hemisphere where the olive comes to fruition in the um, October, November, December. Then we flipped and went to, the, of course, the southern hemisphere. Seasons are changed. And so we could witness the harvest in uh, March. April and May in Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. So we spoke to everyone who we could. We spoke to farmers, we spoke to producers, uh, uh, wholesalers, scientists whose work in life was to analyze and certify olive oils. We spoke to tasters, people who'd owned groves for 800 years in their family, people who were brand new and were establishing groves of a thousand trees in Australia. So we just basically had a rule that we would speak to anyone (laughs) who would give us their time. And then the book was born out of the, okay, now we have all this information. How can we communicate that to folks in a way to make it as interesting to them as we found uh, Tom Mueller's book on the olive oil fraud was to us. I think uh, in addition to the, uh, um, the travels, um, we also had the boldness. You know, w- w- when, we, when we started our excursion into olive oil chemistry, we thought, well, we don't know very much about olive oil chemistry. We're not really sure it's going to be all that compelling. <laughs> but um, we're gonna we're gonna sort of launch. We'll give it the old college try, and you know it's it's certainly not something in our heritage. You know, coming from Massachusetts, you don't necessarily think these people will be talking about olive oil, and so it really was our connection with our Turkish friend that that got us interested in it. But the deeper we got in, the more interesting the subject became, for a wide variety of reasons. It was the multi you know, sort of the interdisciplinary nature um, because there uh, there is that question that we heard 
several times, even this past institute, um, did, uh, you know, the olive tree is now a tree instead of a bush because of the action of humans on it. But there is a question of did the humans change and tame the olive tree or did the olive tree tame and change the humans? Uh, it's a very, it's not really clear which direction that goes in. So it's a very fascinating subject from a wide variety of reasons. And the chemistry just became a lot more interesting uh, to us. And, and so we, uh, uh, we ended up teaching a course in uh, Istanbul during the first half of our leave, um, which is a, a little bit of a bold step for two people from Massachusetts to teach an olive course to, uh, to Turks. But a lot of folks, what we found was a lot of folks just don't know the chemistry behind what they are experiencing. They've got the history, they've got the experience, they know what, it, what a good olive oil tastes like, uh, but they don't really understand the chemical story behind that. So that was another reason uh, for the book. Uh, and indeed, a lot of the people who gave very freely of their time, people who would charge high consultancy fees to talk to someone. We spent a morning with a fellow who, who you know, probably, probably gets hundreds of dollars an hour, and he just gave us the time, and we thought, we really, we have to pay these people back because they've been so uh, generous to us in, in talking to us. Yeah, one of the things I really like about the book is the vignettes. Um, I think that's a really interesting um, part of it where you actually have people talking about their story. And when you were just talking about the um, how people don't really understand the underlying science, I think of the there's the one um, uh, anecdote where someone's in the they have a family grove and they say, well, how do you know when it's time to actually gather the uh, olives? And they say, well, our grandmother goes out every day and looks at them. And then one day she just says, it's time. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> the structure of the book was put together to highlight that human aspect. I think if we just, if the, especially the American public, but we get exposed to all of these stories of olive oil fraud and I know people are so afraid of buying any kind of olive oil because they hear these stories about the fraud. And yet there are so many people who are working so hard to produce exquisite olive oils that we really wanted to showcase those people in our, in our book. And these people are all kinds of farmers and new scientists who've studied the olive oil. So in the book, what we wanted to do is, the way we thought about it is, the book starts out giving some of the origin stories of the olive oil, so, and the olive tree. And what's amazing when we started looking at it is there are origin stories from every Mediterranean culture. So whether it's Greek or, um, you know, the Islamic countries or, Christian countries, Jewish countries, every culture that grew up around the Mediterranean had their own and very uh, unique story in which the tree was always linked to a gift from God or a gift from the gods. So this tree that really is relatively speaking immortal, at least for thousands of years, is linked to 
a spiritual heritage. So starting from that origin story, we then take the story of olive oil through the whole growth of the tree. So we plant a grove in chapter two. We um, grow throughout the seasons in chapters uh, three. We then harvest and talk about the harvesting process and then the packaging and the shipping and then other applications with uh, olive oil besides just eating it and then we think about as well in the final chapter some of the sustainability issues and as we were telling the story we're chemists and Rich and I have both taught in liberal arts colleges and we bring to this problem 70 years of experience of trying to teach basic chemistry so we were trying as a at the same time to tell our chemical story, to try to set the underlying concepts of, it, each chapter has a chemical theme to it. So we have the, the story of the tree, we have the underlying chemistry, and it felt to us in the first iteration that what was missing is the human story. And here we, we met literally hundreds of people on our journey, and so we tried to highlight the different kinds of people that we met with human cameos. So the way we think about it, the book has chemical cameos and human cameos all linked together with the story of the growth of an olive tree and it's uh, turning from an agricultural product into a product for human consumption. Yeah, and I think it's... Um it's a really interesting way of doing it. And I think that one of the things I like is that the chemistry is very um, understandable. It's not at a higher level where you're just like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, it's very well done. And I have to say, I I was reading it. And by chapter two, I was like, I need to plant some olive trees. Too bad I can't do it in this climate because they've just told me I can't do it in this climate. But I was like, man, I totally want olive trees now to do this myself. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really compelling story, definitely. And I, I actually, um, you know, one of my sort of um, areas of interest is, of course, history. Um, I am at heart a historian, uh, not a scientist. Um, and, <laughs> um, and so I really loved some of the stories about the origins and um, sort of pulling those two things together, the history and the science. Um, like you were saying, um, Rich, that um, I really love the idea of how did humans figure out these things. So you look at things like a banana and you look at an original banana and you think, how did we get to a real banana from that? And if you think about these olives from these tiny bitter pods that now we have these beautiful olives and we were doing it, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, I think you said at one point, you know, at least 3000 BC. And, you know, it's just so amazing that and, humans were able to do that. And probably before that. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, a very, very long time. We, we did visit one tree, just thinking about the longevity of the tree. We visited one tree in Crete that was 3,000 years old. So a 1,000, you know, before the Common Era, a 1,000 years there, someone had put that tree in the ground, and they had, in fact, grafted it. So it was actively farmed, 
it was farmed with intent and with a lot of knowledge. Um, and so it's it's been with us forever. Um, we do have that that question, you know, whose idea was it first to eat olives or to consume the oil that comes out of them? Because they are, we verified by tasting them during harvest, they're still extremely bitter. It's still not a fruit that people are going to pluck some off the tree and just casually eat the way you do with apples or, you know, if you go to a pick-your-own-apple place, you can you can snag one to, to, to try it out. People don't do that with olives. Um, so whose who's thought it was to put them in salt water for several weeks so that they would cure and become less bitter? Um, uh, it's a, obviously lost to, uh, lost to history or prehistory, um, but it's amazing that, that we were able to, to figure that out. Yeah, actually, that's something interesting that I didn't know before um, I started listening to you guys talk about olive oil. I didn't even know that olives required all of this, you know, pre-processing. I figured, you know, you take an olive off the tree and you crush it and you get oil. And so, um, you know, and so I the, think the oil itself does when, when people do the processing, that that processing is done as quickly as possible after. That after is true. You take, You're right. You take it off the tree. <laughs> Um, which is a crucial part of the quality, and that's that's something people really worry about as they're planning their operations. Uh, it's then done. The processing is done in about an hour or so, um, so it's a very quick process. That because you're just looking at the oil, most of the incredibly bitter stuff is carried away with the waste product. Um, you know, the the trade-off on that is that only about 20 percent or maybe if you're lucky, 25% of the olive is the oil. So you do have a quite a bit of waste material you've got to figure out what to do with. Um, and there are various creative solutions to that. Um, but uh, the oil is, um, is, is good directly out of the, uh, out of the, the, the processing uh, that happens. Uh, it's usually a little better about a month or so later after it's had a chance to kind of settle down, but um, that's really when it has its peak flavor. Uh, so that's a very quick process. There's nothing more sensual than standing in the middle of an olive press and smelling the green, wonderful odors that are coming out of the presses as the fruit, and by the way, it is a fruit, that goes, uh, the olive fruit goes from the hoppers into the um, crushers and then into the malexers, which are devices that just basically churn the olive paste uh, for maybe 30 or 40 minutes until it's ready. And that is, there's no equation for that. There's no formula that you can program to know exact there has to be a really skilled operator in there who's watching the um, consistency of the paste who's watching for the pooling of the oil and then at a magic moment uh, then the paste gets moved off to centrifuges which then spin the product such that the oil which is the lightest least dense stays in the center and can't get siphoned off and essentially, that's it. It's, it's a very, very modest 
perturbation of the system. And it's what is implied when you say virgin oil because it has no chemical refining. It doesn't have any harsh solvents that are being used. It is really just simply crushing the fruit, letting it stew, and spinning it. Or in the olden days, they would actually press it. Uh, in a modern olive press, there is, in fact, no pressing that actually <laughs> happens. But uh, there are other things that will allow one to indicate the quality of the oil based on lots of different chemical markers, but you can smell it. You know, if you're a really astute producer, you are just trusting your senses to tell you when the oil is ready to be moved from this um, malaxer into the, into the centrifuges. So when we saw uh, presses being run, most of the really well-run places um, would involve having someone who knew how to taste oil because it's still the case that one of the most sensitive instruments that we have to analyze olive oil is our own sense of smell and taste so um you know we this place we saw in crete i think was the first place that that was uh that was really dramatically like that the you know the operator is tasting the oil and um, and is saying, you know, oh, we just, you know, we're we're not letting it stew for quite long enough, and you make little adjustments to the process and and try to really optimize it. Um, and he had even noticed, for example, when they changed water supply, there's some some washing water that that's added to the process. When you, when they changed water supply, the taste of the oil changed, and so they found they had to change back because they didn't want to sacrifice the quality of the oil. Um, so if you're attentive to the process, you can make some very, very high-quality high quality oil. Yeah, and I think that um, obviously you make the um, analogy in the book, and it was really interesting to think about how it's very, um, very similar to wine. And in fact, I think in some groves, they actually grow uh, wine grapes and olives in the same groves. And so I think it's really interesting, um, and of course one of the things that I think about is when they were talking, when you were talking about the sort of ancient way of doing it and amphora. And so you generally think of amphora having wine in them, but they would have also had olive oil and it would have been the two together again. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, Definitely. It's a very high value uh, product. And so if you think about how dangerous shipping was 2000 years ago, it was a gigantic risk to go out in the in the uh, seas with the the boats that they have, which are very difficult to manage. So you're only going to put your most valuable stuff on there, and olive oil was definitely part of that. Which also meant, when you think about fraud, there was fraud 2,000 years ago. There were people oh, yes. faking. <laughs> so it's, you know, humans, I guess, don't change. Well, we're going to take a break for a moment and do some PSAs, and then... We're going to come back and we're going to talk about how do you actually pick olive oils? Because, you know, there is very much a difference between them. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. 
I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Robots the size of blood cells, Earth-like planets outside the solar system, science fiction. No, science faction. Join us, Seth Shostak and Molly Bentley and Valley Free Radio, Monday mornings at 9 for Big Picture Science. Big Picture Science steps back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're headed. So think Big Picture Science. You'll find it here Monday mornings at 9 on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, WXOJ. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musik Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. A world of opportunity is sitting here in the Pioneer Valley, right in Hoyoke. Bringing together a variety of organizations, Passport Hoyoke helps you discover Hoyoke's varied treasures. With numerous events happening nearly every day, there's no reason to ever be bored. For a full list of events and member organizations, visit Passport Hoyoke on the web at www.passporthoyoke.org. Come discover the city of Hoyoke. Are you interested in connecting with the international community in the Pioneer Valley? Then volunteer to help your immigrant neighbors improve their English and integrate better into their surroundings. Become a volunteer tutor. Take a free 15-hour training taught by the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. For more details on an application, go to ili.edu or contact Amy at ili.edu. Students come from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So volunteer to tutor and expand your world. 
And you can talk about olive oil with them, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are talking about olive oil. And now we're we're getting to the best parts. Um, We're going to talk about how to pick an olive oil and why olive oil is really good for you. So one of the most common questions we are asked by most of our friends and family is, how can I choose a good olive oil? I think people are really frightened based on some of the media about rancid olive oil, fraudulent olive oil. And so we, we thought we might come with, we're not, gonna th- we're not gonna say the best olive oil because that is as personal a choice as the best wine. So, but rather I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the things that you can do to educate yourself about a good olive oil. We have, of course, brought along some bottles of olive oil. <laughs> yes. Yes, we did so, bring, so bring we along some of our favorite bottles. Some bottles of olive oil and one tin of olive oil, which is a perfectly, perfectly fine way to buy it. And uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the labels as well as we go along. That's part of the reason we brought this in. So that is, the I think, the very first key is you really have to read the label. Well, maybe actually I'll say before you read the label, look at the bottle. You don't want to buy olive oil that's in a clear plastic bottle. Olive oil is really sensitive to light. And so if you have light from the store, the fluorescent light, or maybe in transit sunlight that would have been um, irradiating the bottles, Degradation processes are happening within the bottle. So avoid the plastic bottles or even uh, clear glass bottles. So the bottles should be be tinted. They could be green. They could be red. They could be black. It doesn't really matter. Um, It's also true that you can buy your olive oil in cans. And we did bring along Mm. one sample of a really fine olive oil that we like that comes from Crete that's in a can. And some of the other olive oils that are being marketed that we've only seen available online actually are in vacuum-sealed uh, containers. So like the, the, the bag-in-the-box bag sort of the thing box, that you yes. see for wine as well. So that's actually a, a pretty nice way to, to buy it. We haven't, uh, again, we haven't seen much in the stores here, but that's also perfectly fine. Yeah. So the two enemies of olive oil that will work successfully to degrade your olive oil, which I just want to remind you is really just unadulterated fruit juice. <laughs> so your olive oil is an, has no preservatives in it. It has no chemicals to stabilize it. It was squeezed and pressed and spun and collected and put into a bottle. So the things that you need to remember to preserve this amazing liquid gold is that you're going to be having to keep it away from light and away from heat and away from oxygen. So in our household, we have several different kinds of olive oil because we like, sometimes we like a robust strong oil. Sometimes we like a light floral oil. Other times we'll use a a, a less flavorful oil for cooking. So each has its own purposes, but what we want to do is not have huge, large bottles that will go stale over time. You just can't use up the olive oil fast enough. 
So it might be a huge bargain to buy five gallons of olive oil, but unless you're going to be a consumer like the Greeks, who are the <laughs> largest consumers in the world of olive oil, don't go for the large bottle. So I tend to buy a 500 milliliter bottle or smaller, um, especially if it's a, it's a, these days what's very popular is a co-milled oil. So you might get a rosemary olive oil or garlic olive oil or lemon olive oil. So small bottles of those because these are only going to be used for accents. So look at your bottle, make sure it's been packaged properly, and then you, you have to do your label reading. So, and sometimes sadly, the labels have the information so small on there, but it is required by law that the uh, harvest or best buy date is on the bottle. So check that best buy date and also realize that that best buy date is typically two years after the olive has been harvested. So the or sooner- Or sometimes after the oil was put in the bottle. So it's not always clear exactly when they calculate that from. But you can usually tell if it's in the Northern Hemisphere, from the Northern Hemisphere, so the Mediterranean or California, that will be harvested in September, October, November, maybe December. If it's from the Southern Hemisphere, like Chile or Australia or New Zealand or South Africa, that will be harvested then in kind of February, March, April, May. And so you can kind of back calculate a little bit <laughs> to figure out when it, when it was actually harvested. Um, because the, uh, the longer it sits, um, the more it, it grows a bit tired. And then after that, every olive grove produces a unique flavor. So uh, we tend to like, Rich and I, olive oil from Crete. Um, I don't know whether it's the romanticism of how wonderful Crete was and the people that we met, but um, we, uh, they tend to make it, is it Koroneki? Am I remembering the right olive? So there's one type of olive that is very particular, in um, in Crete, and we just love the oil that it produces. We also came to learn about Gaia, which is a company that is a very eco-friendly, with an amazingly brilliant CEO who tries to get all of his workers be Greek workers and try to keep the production local. And he introduced us to this particular um, collaborative cooperative of oil in the uh, village of Kritza. And this cooperative of 900 farmers actually puts their olives together to produce this amazing olive oil. And I'm not the only one who thinks their oil is wonderful. Uh, Kikora, who's an iron chef, uh, also really loves their oil. And so she has actually rebranded a type of oil that comes from the similar groves around this particular village that we met. When we returned from uh, our sabbatical, we one of the first things we were so delighted to find out is that uh, our own local uh, vendor, Manny, has uh, put his own label on some olive oil. So in a, it, it's a Cretan oil as well. And so we were just, we purchased some, we tasted it, we loved it, and we're then happy to find out and just a few months later that it actually won a silver medal at the New York International Olive Oil Competition. So 
way to go, Manny. And <laughs> everyone can pick up a bottle of Manny's oils it's in most places. But it's a bit of a robust oil. It's a bold oil. It's a lot of flavor, a lot of bitterness. And not everybody will like that oil. The American palette for oil is way more directed towards a Tuscan oil, which is more fruity, more green, a blend usually of a couple of different types of olives. And so find yourself the bottle that tells you that you've got a Tuscan oil that comes from Italy because you've got to be really careful about the Italian oils. They often will be oils where the olives have, the oil itself has come from everywhere except for Italy. And then it's repackaged in Italy and blended and sold as Italian packaged oil with an Italian name. So the label again will often tell you where does the olive oil come from. And we've certainly also found some terrific California olive oils that make some absolutely wonderful oil. Um, so we have a California Olive Ranch uh, version sitting here. That's uh, that's a this is the Arbosana, which is a little bit uh, more bold than than a couple of the others that they have. So they've got a a, a variety of things. Um, you know, South Africa, Australia makes quite a lot of oil. They make more oil than the United States does. Uh, they can make some some really quite quite good stuff. We've had uh, even from New Zealand, um, which again, you don't think of, I think probably most people don't think of New Zealand all that often. In general, <laughs> In general you certainly don't think about it as uh, a source of olive oil, but they have some absolutely wonderful oils from down there uh, and some, some wonderful people that we got a chance to meet as we were down there as well. So there's a variety of places um, and because one of the rules is you'd like to have, if possible, the freshest oil you can, what that means is in uh, certain parts of the year, you might be looking to the Southern Hemisphere because it's harvested six months later. Um, so we're um, approaching, I think at this point, the end of the harvest season. So it's going to be another month or two before they actually get this Southern Hemisphere oil in bottles and get it shipped over here. But um, sort of in the fall, you might be looking to uh, southern hemisphere oil for the most, for the freshest. Uh, and then come, uh, you know, January, February, March, you're looking to the northern hemisphere oils for the, for the very freshest oil you can get. Um, and so uh, it's nice to experiment with a few, find some people that you like the, their approach. Um, which is exactly the th thing that people have been doing for generations. Um, we just came back from Turkey and we heard a story from uh, this little tiny village. I think there are probably 150 people in, in this town, uh, had almost nothing there. Uh, but they do make a lot of olive oil. And they said uh, this grandmother gave land, she had a big plot of land, she gave it to five siblings. And the five siblings are all on sort of different sides of a mountain. And they all make oil that tastes different. Oh, that's fabulous. Because it's, uh, it's, the, it's where the olives are. It's also what your harvest practices are, how quickly you get them to the processing, how you process the olives. Um, and I think what, con what uh, leads to some of the fraud is uh, that it's really easy to mess it up. I think people always, I think, are trying to make the best oil they can, but it, 
a little slip up here and there and you can you can get something that's a little bit subpar and then you have that question what do you do with it right do you try to kind of slip it under the rug of some other oil do you try to you know and we even even there we heard oh if it's bad oil we just sell it to people in the city they don't know any better <laughs> so, so yes it's, that's it's, what i can again, imagine kind of an old story but um so uh, so as a result uh, if you find some people that you trust, and, and especially a lot of the, the big places will, uh, like California Olive Ranch, for example, they're pretty concerned about uh, consistency and giving out stuff that, that meets very high standards. Um, and these places that we mentioned in, in, in Crete and a lot of the Tuscan oils now, if you really have uh, something that was produced in, all, in Italy, um, they're going to be, you know, if they put their their name on it, they're they're probably going to be pretty careful about it. Yeah, and I think that one of the things you say in the book is, you know, people think nothing of spending a little extra for a good bottle of wine right. that will last you maybe two days if it's you alone. But you know, you don't. But people don't think about doing that with olive oil. And again, they're very similar. If we you come back again and again to how similar they are and you know maybe it is worth spending a little more to get a much better product right. the one of the differences is um and and I, because you mentioned the comparison to wine um you know our original thought was oh we have this very special bottle of olive oil let's store it so that it becomes better and the and the simple answer is regardless of how you store it it will not get better. It always gets worse. So if you have a good bottle of olive oil, please enjoy it. It's really good for you. We'll, we'll talk about that later. You want to have a, a fairly substantial amount of olive oil per day to get the, the benefits from it. Um, and so you want to buy it and enjoy it. But it is true that you know somebody who would spend $30 on a bottle of wine, perhaps, um, that is gone in the course of one dinner. If you've got several people with you, uh, would would resist perhaps spending twenty dollars on a bottle of olive oil that might last them several weeks. Um, so it's it's worth experimenting, finding something you like, even if it's a little more expensive. It's probably uh, you know in a sense a, a better bargain than than a lot of other things we we spend money on. Well, I think we should probably segue into talking about those health, health benefits. benefits. Yes. So I think what I try to do in the book in this chapter is take a, a two-pronged approach to talking about the health benefits because they really are the 97% of the material in the olive oil is just the oil, is just the triacylglycerol that makes up the bulk of the oil. And so there, the other 2% or so is full of rich and interesting types of small molecules that are have unusual and amazing properties that are sort of the rage of talking about antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. But before I got into talking about those particular specialty chemicals, I just wanted to talk about the oil. Because as I said, it's, it's, it's by far the ma vast majority of the material that's in, in the olive oil. And oil and fats you know, have such a bad reputation in our society. 
because people worry, oh, I don't want to take too much oil, I'll get fat, and I don't want to take, too, I want to do low fat this and low fat that or no fat. But in fact, historically speaking, just thinking back even maybe 100 years ago, fats are an amazing source of nutrition, a sort, source of calories. And 2,000 years ago, when we didn't, couldn't pull into a McDonald's and pick up our burgers and fries, people were desperate for caloric content to sort of basically just keep them alive. So in terms of a per gram basis, oils and fats give you more energy per gram than any proteins or sugars or carbohydrates. So the ancients knew this. They knew the energy content of the oils and treasured the oil for that reason. So just on the basis of the nutritional content and the amount of energy you can get per gram, I want to just pause to sort of celebrate the triacylglycerol that's existing in, in the fats. And Is also, isn't it partly the signal it sends to your brain? When you eat those, it's going to satisfy you for longer. Definitely so. true that a if you have a half a cup of a full-fat yogurt, you will not be hungry until noon. But if you have a half a cup of no-fat yogurt, you'll probably be ha hungry again sooner. So there's things that you need to take into account. Take the bigger picture. So fats are not all the horrible, terrible things that a lot of us have been brought up to, to believe. And the second thing is that if you get into fats, like there are different types of fats. And the particular fat that's in olive oil, which is called oleic acid, is a supremely healthy type of fat. It's not a saturated fat like in butter. It's not a polyunsaturated fat like in some of the refined oils, the canola oils, the other types of vegetable oils. It it's sort of is poised right between those two. And as such, it has exactly the right properties for our heart and especially. Our hearts love olive oil. Uh, people have done studies on uh, animal models. If you have um, some sort of insult to heart tissue, if the diet for that animal consists of olive oil, the heart will heal faster. Even if there's um, nutritional variation in the diet, the heart will absorb the olive oil to a greater extent. By the way, we just want to put in a little warning here. If you are having a heart attack, don't <laughs> try to cure it with olive oil. Call 911. It's, that's, the, that's the first thing to do. So, um, and I'll try to make a bit of a long story short. We were once at a conference where, which was a kind of a hoity-toity conference where people were talking about antioxidants and bitterness and all kinds of special things about the special small molecules. And there was a man there from India who, was, uh, who had brought olive oil to India. And he, he was a physician and was spearheading uh, the cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease in India is off the charts. And a lot of people believe it's the ghee and a lot of those kinds of um, saturated fats in the diet that lead to the high cardiovascular disease. So he's trying to switch people in India over to olive oil. But their whole culinary tradition is not compatible with the flavor of olive oil. The curries and the other garam masala are uh, 
fight with the olive flavor. So he was refining his olive oil, getting rid of those small molecules that we all come to treasure. And he nearly got lacerated by the group of people who were aghast that he was serving refined olive oil to, to the people. And he said, look, you know, these people will die of cardiovascular disease. Just the oil will make them healthy compared to choosing a more saturated fat in the, in the diet. I definitely think that between the choice of ghee, which um, is basically clarified butter, if you don't know, (laughs) versus olive oil. Which is delicious in moderation, I have to say. Absolutely delicious in moderation. We do love (laughs) Indian food, but we we don't eat it all the time. So then, um, so I just wanted to make the point. So fats are not the bad. um, We have some data in the book we present that show that people who are eating olive oil do not get obese, that do not get the weight gain versus some other controls are are not there. So olive oil does not make you fat. So then turning the corner into some of those smaller molecules, the polyphenols, the oleocanthals, maybe I'll let Rich take over for a while. So one of the interesting things about the smaller molecules is that you can actually tell that they're there. So the flavor of the olive oil, as you taste it, if it's bitter, that's generally because of the phenolic content in the oil. The higher the phenolic content, the more bitter it is. And that's where a lot of these uh, compounds are that have <coughs> pardon, really interesting um, health effects. So the antioxidants are largely these phenolic compounds. Um, it, and it's, I think it's likely that there are medicinal qualities to these compounds that we don't yet understand. Because uh, rather than just a single compound, as people very often pull out, there's this portfolio of probably 50 to 200 phenolic compounds in there that's different for every, every olive oil. So that's a very important part. So if the oil tastes bitter, that is good for you. Uh, the other interesting thing in the flavor is that there's a kind of a burning in the back of the throat that people get when they taste olive oil directly uh, that may seem, again, like why would you do this to yourself? Uh, but it is uh, due to a, a unique compound called eleocanthal. It's not really found in other uh, food products. Um, it is found in some other plants, but it's not found in other food products. And that's a compound that's very interesting and has a lot of the medicinal qualities of, um, of uh, ibuprofen. So it's an anti-inflammatory, it's a mild pain reliever, but on top of that, it does some things that ibuprofen doesn't do. Uh, and ibuprofen, by the way, has the same flavor response. So if you taste ibuprofen raw, it will do that little uh, burning sensation in the back of your throat that might make you cough. Um, but it also seems to have effect on uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, reducing the, um, the uh, uh, formation of plaques that are, uh, so in animal models, for example, they haven't seen this in humans, obviously, but um, in animal models, they've shown that it reduces the plaque uh, formation, uh, and certainly the use of olive oil has been correlated with uh, better mental performance uh, into into later life, um, you know. Again, it's not a not a guarantee, but these sort of f- 
nutra, uh, what is it, nutraceuticals. Nutraceuticals. Is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific opportunity. And, uh, and of course, it's, it's so good tasting <laughs> that it's a, it's a very easy way to do it. Um, and if you have a good extra virgin olive oil and you happen to saute vegetables in the, in the oil, you'll actually find that some of those bitter compounds are transferred to the vegetables during that frying process, uh, which is, again, chemistry in action. These, <laughs> these molecules are kind of soluble in oil. They're also soluble in water. So if you present them with the kind of watery vegetables, some of these compounds will, will go into the vegetables. So even if you don't consume the oil that the, uh, the vegetables are fried in, um, you're actually getting the benefit of those, uh, and it, makes, it actually makes the vegetables taste better. Uh, because we we certainly know that uh, you know kind of more eating more vegetables is part of this heart healthy you know life healthy uh, uh, diet and uh, that's exactly what the what the sort of Mediterranean diet model proposes. So even the American um, Heart Society AH. American Heart Association, Association recommends that you take um, daily 40 milliliters of olive oil. So if you want to have some little spread of some lovely olive oil on your toast in the morning, like the Turks do, along with, of course, some olives, and then in your lunch salad, drizzle some nice crisp green olive oil over your salad, and at nighttime when you saute up your vegetables or some other products, Use the olive oil because it's not going to, as Rich said, it's not going to be any better if you just leave it in the shelf. But in your kitchen, do keep it away from the heat, keep it away from the stove, keep it in a cupboard. Um, sometimes what we do on our table is we'll, because it's lovely to serve it where you can actually see the oil, is we'll have a small container that's clear glass that we can use for a particular meal to serve up the olive oil to show it off the color. But um, definitely use it all the di every day. And I think getting back to thousands of years of human existence where people have used olive oils, the Olympic athletes were, were massaged with olive oil after and before the events. Some think that maybe even these anti-inflammatory compounds could have helped the athletes recover from some muscular stress that they may have had during their events. We've heard Cleopatra, you know, used her olive oil as a uh, hair cream and had beautiful hair as a result. We've heard about doctors who recommended olive oil anointing on um, limbs that might be suffering from arthritis to act as an anti-inflammatory. And throughout history, the special role of olive oil, even to the role of anointing kings and, um, you know, sacraments. So. It's, it's just an amazing compound. Maybe it's where I will stop and <laughs> let Stacy tell us where to go next. Um, yes. So I, I do want to think that I wanted to point out, though, I thought you can put some olive oil on your avocado toast in the morning. Mm. <laughs> Delicious. Um, but unfortunately, we do have to stop talking about olive oil for this evening. Um, 
up next is civil politics. So do stay tuned for that. And if you want to hear more from me, I am going to be pinch hitting on it. So um, do stay tuned. And that will be coming up in just a few moments. I want to thank you both so much for coming. Oh, this was you, great. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity because we, as you can tell, we love talking about this stuff. So we're, we're always happy to have an opportunity to do that. All right. Well, I will be back next week as well with more science. So good night.